Welcome to Worldly, Vox's weekly guide to the most important stories in the world, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. We're going to be talking about one of the bloodiest wars in the Middle East, one that has killed thousands, left hundreds of thousands starving, and displaced millions. But it's not Iraq, and it's not Syria. It's Yemen, which has become a battleground in a shadow war between Iran and Saudi Arabia, and where there are real reasons to think that the U.S. itself is complicit in war crimes that are leaving enormous amounts of civilians dead. We are not all Al-Qaeda. We are normal people, just struggling with life. We don't know why we were targeted. So, Zach, the human death toll is staggering. We'll come back to it in a moment in a bit more detail, but how did we get here? Well, it began with the 2011 Arab Spring uprising, when uh, the longtime dictator of Yemen was overthrown. Then, uh, as the internationally recognized government that came up afterwards tried to consolidate control, it alienated a Shia Muslim rebel group called the Houthis. And the Houthis, who are sort of separatists and only sort of okay with the central government, ended up just essentially invading the capital and taking over the country. Um, And the Saudis, who neighbor Yemen on the north, felt threatened by this. They saw the Houthis as a proxy for the also Shia Iranians and launched a war designed to topple the Houthis and replace them with the internationally recognized government that had existed after the 2011 uprising. The issue is that this war has not been super effective. It has invited further Iranian intervention and support for the Houthis and has killed a lot, a lot of people. So at the center of this, you have Yemen, right? But you have, essentially, it's this proxy war that it's turned into where you have the Saudis backing one side, um, this kind of government in exile now. You have the Iranians backing the Houthi rebel group. Um, And then you have the United States, right? And we are on the side of the Saudis. And that's kind of what we're going to be getting into today. But you also have this kind of broader coalition, the Saudis. Um, You have Egypt. You have a bunch of other countries. You have United Arab Emirates. The most important kind of players beyond Saudi would be the United States and also the UK, who are backing the Saudis, who are providing weapons, who are providing refueling, um, who are providing intelligence, all sorts of support to the Saudi war mission in Yemen. And I want to talk a bit about that war mission because it's easy to talk about policy and it It could sound really bloodless, but it shouldn't because this is really bloody. And I'm just going to talk through a couple of stats. One, so far, there have been more than 10,000 people killed in Yemen, more than 5,000 of whom are children. It has the worst cholera epidemic in the world where you've had at least 200,000 people suffering from cholera, which basically doesn't exist anywhere else. You have 130 children dying every day in Yemen. They're estimated you might have 50,000 Yemeni children who have died in total. You have millions who are displaced. And these numbers are extraordinary. Thousands who are dead. Thousands of children who are starving. Children with cholera. And they're really kind of stomach-turning. And I, and I don't want to lose the outrage over this. I don't want to lose the notion that the U.S. is helping, literally, kill children. It's also important to note that so the U.N. actually doesn't have an up-to-date estimate of the death toll in Yemen. So the 10,000 people killed number was from August 2016. Right. So they essentially stopped counting. That's quite a while ago. Right. We're in January 2018, which means, you know, the death toll is probably exponentially higher at this point. That's a great point. And why did they stop counting? In large part, because they can't really get access. Right. This is a massive war zone. And Saudi has um, imposed this kind of blockade, not letting aid groups in, not letting actual aid in, um, trying to essentially suffocate the country and the Houthis, which goes to the kind of broader issue of the tactics and the way the Saudis are doing this. 
when we're talking about airstrikes, we're talking about like bombing that Saudi is doing against the Houthis. They're not just striking Houthi military targets. And that's the problem. They're striking things like funerals, weddings, a Coca-Cola factory, homes, markets, schools, hospitals, bridges, critical infrastructure. All of these things are illegal to target in war under international law. I think the time that I've been the angriest about this was when I went to a, a meeting with the Saudi foreign minister, Adel al-Juber, and I pressed him on all of the people they were killing in Yemen and asked him how his government could justify this intervention. What he told me uh, was, was one of the most cynical things I've ever heard. It was, the humanitarian crisis in Yemen is a tragedy. This is a direct quote. We have been the largest donor of humanitarian assistance in the world by far to Yemen. Now think about that for a second. It is technically true. The Saudis have donated a lot of money to humanitarian repair, but it's all their fault, right? They destroyed Yemen. They are responsible to a great degree for the suffering there. And then they have the gall to claim that because they donated a few dollars to help fix it, that, that they're solving the problem. It's like they burned someone's house down and then dropped a sack of cash at their door and was like, it's all better now. Right. It's also important to point out who the money is going to that they give, right? They're not giving that humanitarian aid to the areas that the Houthis control. And by the way, the vast majority of regular Yemenis live in the areas under Houthi control. So just yesterday, I think there was news out that Saudi was going to be um, – giving a big influx of cash to help stabilize the the Yemeni currency I mean, try to help the, the economy that is devastated by this war. But that money is going to a separate bank that Saudi set up for the government in exile. So this money is going still to the people that Saudi back in the war, which means it's not really getting to the actual people that are being devastated by this war. And in fact, Saudi has blocked, not only did they bomb these cranes, right? So Yemen, before the war, got something like 90% of its food imported through this one port on the southern coast. And there are these huge cranes that pick up these large containers filled with aid and medicine and food, right, and get them off cargo ships. It's a really big deal. So Saudi bombed these cranes, first of all. And then when aid groups were, like, trying to send new cranes in to fix this, so literally just aid, just food and medicine could get into the country, Saudi blocked it. So that's the kind of stuff that that's also illegal under international humanitarian law. The entire idea that they are providing some sort of humanitarian aid is just laughable, even if they are technically in numerical terms. So I do want to take a step back for one second, because there's a whole lot of evil, for lack of a better word, being done by the Saudis and their partners and with U.S. help, which, again, we'll get to in a little bit. But we need to understand from the Saudi point of view why this is happening. Right? We need to understand, given what they're doing, they're, they're not dumb. They know they're killing civilians. They know they're getting criticized for it to a degree, why they're doing it. The reason why they're doing it, which is not totally crazy, is they see Iranian influence rising all across the Middle East. And their feeling, again, which is not crazy, is that the nuclear deal the Obama administration signed with Iran, part of what it did was ultimately strengthen Iran, that Iran has more money than it did. Iran isn't quite as isolated as it was. So the Saudis, and I've talked to them, I've talked to some of their partners, they look out at the map and they see an Iranian-friendly government in Iraq. They see an Iranian paramilitary force that basically controls Lebanon. They see a Houthi government in Yemen. And so they look around and they feel like they're encircled on all sides by a country that they see, rightly or wrongly, as an existential threat. And so for them, and it's just important to understand this, the reason why they're willing to do it, and this is a word you hear them use, is Yemen to them is existential. And it needs to be known only because otherwise 
the question we would all have is, why the hell do you do it? And that's the answer. You're absolutely right. It, you hear that constantly from them. Like, this is a very serious thing. Like, we have to deal with this threat. But the irony is that the Iranian influence with the Houthis when the war actually started was way, way less than it is now, several years into the war. So the Iranians, according to U.S. intelligence officials, the Iranians actually didn't want the Houthis to overthrow the government. They actually cautioned them against it. They wanted a much less radical approach than completely overthrowing and like openly toppling the government and taking power. But the Houthis have fought the Saudis for years before without Iranian influence. So intelligence officials believe that even if the Iranians hadn't had any influence or support or provided anything to the Houthis, the Houthis probably would have still been able to topple the government in Yemen and probably still would have done so. The problem is that Saudi is convinced that all of this ability that the Houthis had to, you know, completely defeat the government, to take over really quickly kind of large areas of the country is because of Iran. They're convinced that Iran is totally behind this. The irony is that now Iran is more active in this. The war is costing Iran a few million dollars per month, right? They're providing kind of some missiles, some ammunition, stuff like that. Well, it's costing Saudi Arabia $6 billion per month. So a few million dollars on Iran's side, and it's getting this influence that it didn't even really have as much now in Yemen. It's essentially gotten Saudi to just drain billions and billions of dollars in this disastrous war that's going horribly for everyone involved. So Iran actually kind of came out on top in this, which is just crazy when you think that Saudi essentially got into this war to push back Iranian influence and essentially end up making Iranian influence stronger on its southern border. Right. I think I think to understand the Saudi approach here, you can't just look at recent developments in terms of geopolitics like the like the Iran deal. Though I agree, okay, that that's a factor. Uh, there are two things. The first is that since really since the Iranian revolution in 1979, the Saudis have been deeply concerned about expanding Iranian influence and Iran's ability to export its revolution. Saudi foreign policy has, to varying degrees, focused on containing Iranian influence, which, again, they saw as an expansionist fundamental threat for decades. So this which it was, to be right. fair, expansionist and trying to export its revolution. Right. It's complicated. Iran's foreign policy has shifted since the revolution in right. various different ways. But the point is that this is is part of a long-standing fear about Iran that is calcified into a kind of paranoia on the Saudi side. Right. They aren't being fully attuned to the details of the situation in a lot of these cases. They're often just quite in general concerned about anything that even smacks of Iran. That's part one. In part two is there's a real element of domestic politics here. Uh, the young Saudi crown prince, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, he has really made an aggressive rollback of Iran an essential part of his political appeal and his identity as the guy shaping Saudi foreign policy. This is his war. Uh, I believe he was minister for defense when it was launched. Um, and so that his he's really committed to it. So even over and above Saudi like big foreign policy priorities, right. it matters to him. So there's another facet of this that I want to talk about for a moment, which is the U.S. role. And this is another of the ones where Donald Trump is president. Donald Trump gets blamed for a lot. The U.S. complicity in these war crimes did not begin with Donald Trump. It began with President Obama. And when Jen was talking before about how the Saudis were hitting schools and hospitals, 
that the U.S. in some ways was providing them aid. There's a reason why those types of targets specifically are problematic. We did a video on Vox.com some months back on the, you know, the war in Yemen, which is worth watching. And part of what it pointed to were internal State Department documents that were found by Reuters in which the U.S. government itself under President Obama says we might be complicit in war crimes. And they're worried about it. These documents show they're legitimately worried that they themselves are complicit. And so what do they do? They send Saudi Arabia what they call a no-strike list. And this says, don't bomb schools, don't bomb hospitals, don't bomb funerals. And the Saudis say, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then they bomb schools, funerals, and hospitals. Flash forward. You now have President Trump in office who's embraced Saudi Arabia like never before. He's not a person who cares particularly about human rights. And it's taken months and many deaths until he or anyone in his cabinet have said anything. And this is the kind of thing they said. I think with respect to Saudi Arabia's uh, engagement with Qatar, uh, how they're handling the Yemen uh, war that they're engaged in, uh, the Lebanon situation, I think we would encourage them to be a bit more measured and a bit more thoughtful in those actions uh, to, I think, fully consider the consequences. So that's Secretary of State Rex Tillerson. Mr. Charisma! Mr. Charisma making his appearance for this episode inexplicably still in his job, so I've lost money on my prediction of when he would not be in his job. But, Jen, you were shaking your head angrily as you listened to that quote. Why were you shaking your head angrily? Because just under Trump alone, right? And again, you're absolutely right that Obama started this, right? Obama supported the Saudi war in Yemen. So this is not a Trump thing. But just in fiscal year 2017, which Trump was president for, U.S. support um, and provision of aviation fuel. So we provide gas <laughs> to fuel the planes that they use to bomb schools and bridges and factories, um, increased 140% over the previous year. So while it's true that the Obama administration did not very much to really kind of roll back the Saudis, try to pull them back and, and push them to do better and to stop targeting civilians, it's not just that it's that now Trump has essentially taken the gloves completely off, right? There's no even really kind of veneer of concern, right? Tillerson saying, oh, we would really like for you to, you know, maybe if they could probably stop doing some of these things. But there's no actual follow through, right? They're not actually doing anything. So those State Department documents that you talk about, right, they provided that list. Well, when they ignored that list, there was a literal specific bridge that was on that list that the Saudis then went and bombed. And it was the main bridge that the Yemenis used to get food in. So it's not like we followed up and said, you know, oh, okay, maybe we're going to stop giving you all of this stuff. Obama, for a brief moment, suspended uh, some aid, but then we proceeded to continue to give them million dollars in, in weapons, continue to provide aviation fuel. So there's no serious consequences for the Saudis when it comes to what the U.S. is doing beyond bullshit statements like what Rex Tillerson just said. Zach, let's ask the same question as we did before. From the U.S. point of view, if you're Obama or Trump and you know that you're supporting the mass slaughter of civilians and maybe complicit in war crimes, why are you doing it? So there, there are different things for the two administrations, right? If you talk to any Obama person, they'll tell you that they really did not like the Saudis very much and they didn't really love having to deal with the U.S.-Saudi alliance. But they couldn't scrap it either. So allowing the Saudis to get away with this war with some U.S. backing was a way of, of repairing, to a degree, the relationship that had been damaged by the Iran deal and various different other facets of Obama foreign policy that the Saudis disapproved of. On the Trump side, there's a substantial convergence when it comes to their view of the Middle East. They both see Iran as the preeminent threat to the region. Even Secretary of Defense Mattis, who is 
widely regarded as the most sober voice in the Trump administration is a huge Iran hawk. So they believe that it's important to roll back Iranian influence wherever you can find it, which would lead to backing for the Saudi crusade to do the same thing in Yemen. Yeah. You know, when we talk about international law and war crimes, there's an argument that that people have made that, oh, well, yeah, okay, maybe the U.S. is party to war crimes, right? But it's not like anybody's ever going to prosecute it because, like, the International Criminal Court, like, the U.S. isn't party to it. And it's not like they're going to actually bring, like, American generals in front of a judge and actually, like, convict them of war crimes. Oh, right? I actually wish that they could. Right. But the thing is, first of all, just the fact that you can get away with murder doesn't mean you should just murder people. You should not murder people because it's wrong um, fundamentally. But there's also a kind of more subtle point here, which is there actually could be potential violations of U.S. law going on. So under the Arms Control Act, the U.S. is not supposed to provide any sort of aid, military or otherwise, to countries that are engaging in actual war crimes. There are bipartisan groups in Congress who have brought legislation trying to force the administration under Obama and now under Trump to actually kind of maybe do some more serious kind of follow through on pushing the Saudis. It hasn't gone anywhere, right? Congress doesn't have a ton of power in foreign policy compared to the executive. But I think it's really important to point out that it's not just international law, that there could actually be serious U.S. legal violations. So this isn't theoretical. Like, these are laws that Congress passed that we're just kind of ignoring. Before we wrap the segment, I do just want to make one point, which is this. Near the end of December, any December, it gets towards Christmas and New Year's and kind of the news cycle begins to slow. We all start to get a little bit tired and look forward to the end of the year. And we shouldn't, because just in the last couple of weeks of December, the following things happened. A Houthi missile, the third in less than a month, flew into Saudi Arabia. This was fired at a royal palace. It didn't hit it, but it was the third missile to hit in a month. Between December 6th and December 16th, Saudi airstrikes killed 136 people, dozens of whom were children, dozens of whom were women. And the U.S. said absolutely nothing. That quote from Rex Tillerson was on December 8th. Many of these deaths came after, and the response from Washington was deafening, deafening silence. Here we are at the start of a new year. We still have the resolutions we have made to ourselves, many of which we probably won't keep, some that we still can. And one of the ones that we can do is to learn about new things, to learn about new places, to better ourselves. A great way to do that is by watching and listening to The Great Courses Plus. It has fascinating information in virtually any category, virtually any country, virtually any topic. It's unlimited access to thousands of topics, it has great insight from some of the world's leading professors, experts, and other teachers. So here's one example, Turning Points in Modern History. It's a perspective on world history from the discoveries, inventions, and ideas that have shaped the world, from the invention of the printing press to the rise of social media. If you're trying to understand the news that's happening now, you can't really do it unless you understand what's come before. So here's how you start the year off right and take advantage of everything The Great Courses Plus has to offer. Right now, they're giving my listeners a fantastic limited time deal. You could either get a free trial to try it and see what they offer, or you could sign up for their annual plan and get $20 off. But to take advantage of these deals, you have to sign up now because the offer won't last long. Here's how you do it. Sign up today at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash worldly. Remember, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash worldly. For elsewhere this week, we're going to go back to Korea, but for something vastly different than what we normally talk about.
Those are the stirring sounds of a North Korean orchestra of sorts that North Korea is sending to the South as part of a really interesting diplomatic breakthrough where they're sending a delegation of athletes, of musicians, and of cheerleaders to South Korea for the upcoming Winter Olympics. The two countries will walk in together under a flag of a unified Korean peninsula, sort of strange flag of a blue peninsula against a white background. We can talk about this as athlete diplomacy, as orchestra diplomacy, Jen's favorite of cheerleader. Cheerleader diplomacy, diplomacy. baby. But it's not forget hockey diplomacy. They're forming a united women's hockey team and sending it together. Which I just have a lot of practical questions about. Like, how's the training going to go? So actually, let's say say what this is. Right. So they are forming a joint ice hockey team. I think that's the only team that's actually going to be competing together. And it still remains to be seen whether the IOC, the Olympic Committee, will approve the North Korean athletes because apparently they missed a few deadlines because this was kind of a late-breaking thing. But like you said, on top of the the actual athletes, there are going to be this huge delegation of musicians, cheerleaders. And it's really interesting. They, the cheerleaders themselves, I'm just really excited about that. Um, they were all handpicked. It's part of this 230-strong, all-female army of beauties, that they call it. Um, they're all handpicked to make sure that they come from good families, they're loyal to the government, to the regime, and that there aren't any Japanese sympathizers in there. And it's also interesting to note Kim Jong-un's wife is a former cheerleader. So there's there's a reason he's sending cheerleaders. It's also interesting to note their colleague and friend, Jen Williams, is herself a former cheerleader, not known potentially for Japanese sympathies one way or the other, but familiar with the rest. Fake news. So the South Korean, when it gets to the ice hockey team, the South Korean team was actually kind of mad. They're not really excited about that because they're like, I don't even know if these people have been training. Like, they're not going to be as good. Now we suddenly have to compete with them. Like, it's going to bring us down. So not everyone in South Korea has even been super excited about this. That's what I was saying about the logistics of it. It just seems difficult. And and it's not just the athletes, too. Polling suggests that a lot of South Koreans are really upset about the decision to march under the shared flag at the beginning, particularly. Only like four in ten of the Korean population supported it, the South Korean population. And that's because they see it as an unnecessary concession to the North, right? They've been behaving so badly since, you know, as long as anyone can remember, certainly since Kim Jong-un took power. And now all of a sudden, Moon Jae-in, the South Korean president, is saying, oh yeah, we can be friends, we can work together, we can cooperate on mundane things, we're all part of the same country. And a lot of Koreans, just they, they feel like this is this incredibly jarring shift from the confrontation stance that had been there about, you know, just a month ago. So, right. that's a, It's a great point because there's the optimistic read, which is if North Korea has athletes, musicians, and cheerleader, uh, what, was they, what are they called? The Army of Ladies? The Army of Beauties. The Army of Beauties. So they've got their Army of Beauties, their women's ice hockey players, a lot of other things. They probably won't conduct a missile test towards the South. They won't do anything too stupid towards the South. Maybe this is the opening of diplomacy, actual diplomacy, so the nuclear crisis begins to die down. So that's the optimistic read. And the pessimistic read, and I think that's some of that what you're referencing in terms of public opinion in the South, is this allows the North to buy, buy time. It buys them some goodwill, and it, they don't give anything back. They're not saying, okay, as part of this, we're going to stop missile tests. As part of this, we'll give up anything related to our nuclear program. It's like you're pocketing a concession and not giving one of your own. I think it actually goes even farther than that. I mean, I totally agree, but it's it's a huge propaganda victory um, for North Korea in the sense that it shows to South Koreans in particular, look, we are not a threat to you. All of this warmongering that you hear from President Trump, you know, saying that North Korea is evil and we're a threat, we're not a threat to you. Look, our cheerleaders are going to go hang out together. It's fine. And it's 
part of experts believe it's part of a broader strategy um, on the part of Kim Jong Un to essentially drive a wedge between the U.S. and South Korea, who are you know obviously very closely allied, and convince South Koreans to be like, well, maybe the U.S. is is a little too too warlike right now. Like maybe maybe they aren't a big threat, and it's it's a really smart ploy. I mean, it also just kind of more generally definitely makes them look more normal, right? Like it makes them look like a normal country who participates in the Olympics rather than this kind of like evil, terrifying, nuclear warhead, you know, wielding country. It's like, look, we have hockey players and cheerleaders. We also know that Kim Jong-un has a random affinity for random sports, right? He loves basketball. He loves Dennis Rodman, the former bull star known for his multi-hued hair. He apparently loves hockey. He may seem to love skiing. And so there is this also side prospect that sports is an area of commonality between us and the North. But John, I, I think your point is right. Like if it is hard to look at an army of cheerleaders and think they're going to nuke us one day. Right. It's it just, and if you're the South, if you're trying to maintain pressure on the North, and if you're Donald Trump, especially trying to get the South to help maintain pressure on the North, this doesn't help. I mean, it does seem kind of like a propaganda masterstroke, not to be too cynical, where there is legit risk. I mean, it's risk that they buy us them weeks, buys them months. Parts of the South Korean population perhaps is won over, which is why I think it's so interesting that the South Korean population seems to be onto the game, right? Like if four of 10 support this and six of 10 don't, that gives you a sense that much of South Korea is thinking in the way that we're thinking, that this is too much for the North for too little back. And according to one report I read, it's not just the conservatives in South Korea. The the current president, Moon, is a leftist. And he won office on the basis of support from a lot of young people in the way that left-wing coalitions typically do in advanced democracies. Except, I believe it was Reuters went around and interviewed a bunch of different young people inside Korea and found that they were the people most anchored in part by this move because they've been so attuned and so threatened by the North for their entire lives. Right? It's really uh, it's a really risky, risky move on Moon's part. It alienates not only the U.S. but parts of his own political base. But that's See, that's interesting to me. I didn't realize that that it was mostly the younger people because, you know, if those are the same people who elected Moon, I mean, he openly campaigned saying, I want to improve ties with North Korea, right? He is the son of people who fled North Korea to the South. He openly campaigned saying that he wanted to improve ties with, with North Korea. So I, I'm wondering, it's not like that's a surprise to them. I think it's, it may be some of the things that have happened since he campaigned. I mean, the incessant number of missile tests, the incessant talk of right. destroying America, of sinking sure. Japan, which is something that was said fairly recently. So I could understand how even if you voted for somebody who says they'll favor and try to get warmer ties with the North, you might still say, just since the election, the North has been so terrible. Right. Why are we giving them anything? Part of why this is also interesting to me is most Americans have never seen a North Korean other than Kim Jong-un, or if they've seen Team America, the puppet version of his father. They've never met a North Korean. Much of the world will be seeing North Koreans for the first time. And so if we think of North Koreans typically, if we think about them at all, as these starving, shrunken people, these will be North Koreans carefully selected by their government to not be those people. Right. These will be the tallest, the best fed, the ones who are in the best condition, so that North Korea can say to the world, look, we aren't a country of the starving. We've got these beautiful athletic people. Exactly. Every single element of this is going to be choreographed down to the smallest, most minuscule detail. Um, there were some reports that said that the delegation would probably even walk across the demilitarized zone into South Korea, um, the the DMZ, the heavily armed border between the two Koreas, which would be like a hugely symbolic move, right? To have like these 
cherry-cheeked, smiling cheerleaders and, you know, musicians and athletes stepping across the DMZ and walking, like, peacefully into South Korea is really, really symbolic. Of course, well, we see it through that lens as a victory for North Korea propaganda-wise. It's also a real risk for them. Any one of these athletes could try to defect. And that's a when you take some of your... Uh, as you said, most presentable people, and you give them an opportunity to flee to a place where they can be happier and safer, there's a not insignificant chance that one of them might do that, even if they're selected to be regime sympathizers. The regime may not know people who, in their hearts, really want to get out. And that could spark a serious diplomatic incident. And even, you're totally right. And uh, I was reading, in 2005, a North Korean delegation went to South Korea of, of cheerleaders. And 22 of them, when they came back, were sent to prison camps, were sent to work camps just for talking about what they saw while they were in South Korea. So there's the other side of it being risky, which you're sending your people who have a very specific vision of what the world is, what reality is, and now you're sending them out to South Korea, and they're going to see things that might not jive with what they've been taught for their entire lives, right? And they're going to be very tightly controlled. They're not going to be able to like go go to the bar and hang out after after a cheer. No, no Olympic Village Tinder for them. Probably not so much. But it's a serious risk for them too. And that serious risk and the Olympics themselves begin in a whopping twenty one days from today. Our friend Jillian Weinberger will be at the Olympics. We'll see if she can come back with some good North Korean swag. Thank you all, and we'll be with you all next week.